Taken from our text for this morning, Isaiah chapter 60, the first three verses. So I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Let's hear the word of the Lord for us this day. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This uh, well-known passage comes at a very uh, precise location in the book of Isaiah. If you'll notice, there's a little portion of narrative just before chapter 60. Uh, so probably in, in your Bible, verses, uh, verse 21 there is not set, aside, set apart in poetry, uh, but is... Uh, Listed as prose, but uh, most of chapter 59 is in, in poetry, as is all of uh, chapter 60, 60. So we have here a, a poetic prophecy, uh, the, the poetry being used to, to make it more memorable for us uh, so that we can really, really grasp the truths that are conveyed here. But let's think about the setting here. This comes out of a or right after a very dramatic uh, scene in chapter 59. And in fact, you may remember that I used the last part of chapter 59 as the call to worship uh, this last Lord's Day. And chapter 59 really focuses our attention upon what the Lord has done to save his people. Look at the, the opening verses of chapter 59 there. Using the covenant name for God, Yahweh, Isaiah says, Yahweh's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. The people have accused God of being absent, of not hearing their prayers, of not responding to their needs. Verse 2, he goes on to say, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. 
and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Skip down a little bit further. We read from the perspective of the people, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. A little bit further down, we hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. Why? For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying Yahweh and turning back from following our God. And then a couple of lines later come the passage that I used for our call to worship last Lord's Day. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. So what is God's response to this? What is the response of the covenant God, Yahweh, to this condition of his covenant people, Israel? Uh, look down a couple more lines. Yahweh saw it, and it displeased him that there is no justice. He saw that there is no man and wondered that there is no one to intercede. There is no human solution, in other words. It, there is no human response to bring justice and right to establish truth. So what happens then? His own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of Yahweh from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of Yahweh drives. And the Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares Yahweh. And then comes that interlude where our attention is brought to the covenant once again. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh. My spirit that is upon you, speaking to the prophet, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says Yahweh, from this time forth and forevermore. In a very real way, that tells us that this word is for you today, for us today, as God's covenant people. We are the heirs of this word from God. So that's the background then, the setting in which we begin our text. And immediately in our text, you'll notice you read two imperatives, two commands, right? Now what, it is, what is not apparent in English, but is in Hebrew and would be in Greek, is that these commands are addressed to a female. This is not surprising because the people of God are often personified as a woman. This applies both to Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. And it's evident in both Hebrew and Greek, which use gendered words that English does not. So we see, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 8, the daughter of Zion, that's an image for God's people, is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. 
In other words, God's covenant people are like a daughter left alone and surrounded by enemies. And as we saw from, from chapter 59, this state of abandonment is because of the people's sin against their covenant God. And so we read in Isaiah 3, 8, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. See the imagery there personifying God's people. Because their speech and their deeds are against Yahweh, defying his glorious presence. Isaiah goes on to describe the situation as one in which the, the elite of the nation are crushing the poor, grinding their faces in the dirt, while strutting themselves like haughty women with their noses in the air, their jewelry tinkling as they cast lustful glances. And God will judge them, Isaiah says. And Jerusalem will be then like an abandoned woman in the dust, Isaiah 3.26, her gates, personifying the city there, shall lament and mourn, empty, she shall sit on the ground. As we saw in last Sunday's text, in Isaiah chapter 7, their social and economic injustice was matched by their alliance with pagan nations and their worship of pagan gods. They professed to be believers. But they really believed in themselves and political power and in their bank accounts and property. So we're not surprised then that the commands given imply that the woman or girl in our text is not standing and not shining. She is cast down and in darkness. Again, recall those words from chapter 59, we hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness but we walk in gloom. While the people as a whole had broken covenant with God, there nevertheless remained a remnant. Remember, that, was, that is a major theme in Isaiah. There remained a remnant who were known for repentance. And so we read, again, repeating words from chapter 59, a redeemer will come to Zion. Zion, the city, uh, image for the people, of course. And to those in Jacob, Jacob is a name for Israel. To who? Just to Zion in general, just in general to those in Jacob. Is this a biological promise to the Jews? No, because he goes on to say, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. A parallel structure of verse 20 identifies Zion as the repentant then. And that, that echoes the theme all the way back in chapter 1 as well. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. The promise is for those who repent. So, it's to those, then, that our text speaks and says, Arise, get up, stand on your feet, and shine, literally, be light, be light, be a light, stand and be a light. Now, now notice that little word for after that. Okay, because that's important 
letting us know the reason or the basis for these commands and for our being able to obey them. Okay, that the text is not encouraging us to, to think, well, we, we just have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Okay, this is not like the worldly advice that just tells you, well, just get through it, just get over it. Uh, this isn't like, like your own sinful inclination to rely upon yourself, uh, to think that you can do everything yourself. Know that, look again at that, that four there. Arise, obey this command, you daughter of Zion, shine. Why? For your light has come. Your light has come. You can arise, you can be a light, because light from outside yourself has come. Salvation is never something you find in yourself. You may be able to succeed in an earthly sense through relying upon yourself. You may be able to persevere in a, in a job that's tough and be successful at that. You may be able to, to discipline yourself and achieve success at a, in an athletic competition. Uh, you, you might be able to grit your teeth and get through a time of pain and struggle. But ultimately, to rise up and to shine the way our text is talking about here, it takes a resource outside of yourself. And that's what the woman, the girl in our text is given here. She can rise up. She can stand because of a light coming from, without, from outside of her. And what is that light? Well, look at the next line. Okay, the poetry is set up in parallel here so you can clearly identify what that light is, or rather, who that light is. Because in parallel with your light has come, in the first line is the glory of Yahweh, the personal name for God's, that God gave to his covenant people. The glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. The light from outside that enables you to rise and to shine is the light of the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh. Now, don't, don't miss, don't miss the intensity, the, the, the magnitude of that. Rise up, be a light for one who has come who is your light. The glory of Yahweh upon you is dawned. And what is that glory? It's not, you know, a light like a Christmas decoration. It's not even a light like in the physical universe, the light of a star. Here's that glory described in Exodus chapter 24, verses 16 and 17. The glory of Yahweh dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. It's an awe-inspiring sight. 
This is the glory of Yahweh that we saw, if you recall, filling the tabernacle and later the temple so that no one could go into it because of the intensity of the glory cloud there. This is the, the glory that we see revealed in God's words to Moses. Hear the connection here between the glory and the words, he says, in Exodus chapter 34. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him, that is, Moses there, and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Indeed, that is always the response when someone has a glimpse of the glory of God. Remember Isaiah's experience in chapter 6, where in a vision he sees a representation of the glory of the Lord, the King, Yahweh of hosts. Isaiah 6, 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. This is the glory, then, that always evokes a godly fear. Go, to go back to Isaiah chapter 59, verse 19, So shall they fear the name of Yahweh from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of Yahweh drives. This is the glory of God that blinded Saul on the road to Damascus, right? threw him to the ground, both physically and mentally. This is the glory that caused the Apostle John to fall down like a dead man before the revealing of his Lord in the vision in the book of Revelation. It's that glorious God who has shone upon his people. And so you have the remarkable possessive pronoun there, your light, your light, spoken to God's people. This incredible, glorious God belongs to his people because he's drawn them to himself. We're going to explore that a little bit more in a moment, but first let's look at verse 2. Because verse 2 sort of fills out, amplifies, amplifies what it means for God to come. Okay, remember verse says, verse 1 says, Our, your light has come. Speaking to this woman representing God's people. Your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And now we have another four in verse two. So this is filling out our understanding of what's happening here. And in some ways, it's central to our text. For behold, we have that little word behold to further draw our attention to it. Uh, you don't want to miss this. And, and this verse 
Kevin's saying here, brings in this image of darkness. Now, now I'll warn you ahead of time, customarily this darkness is just taken for a general darkness of sin in which, under which people live, certainly a biblical truth. But I'm going to deviate a little bit from that because I think our text is telling us to associate this with God himself. So we're told the glory of the Lord, that awesome glory that invokes terror in a sinner, has risen upon us. And then in the next breath, that's amplified or that's unfolded, as it were, in verse 2, darkness shall cover the earth. Thick darkness the peoples, the coming of God involves darkness. Now I'm going to argue that based partly on narrative and partly on prophecy in Exodus 10, verses 21 through 23. Here it is in narrative, okay? The, you'll remember the, the account. The Israelites are, are fleeing from Egypt. You're out in the wilderness of Sinai, approaching Sinai, I should say. Uh, but they've, they've not crossed the Red Sea yet. And they see the hordes of Egypt coming after them to slaughter them. And in that moment then, as they're in fear of the Egyptians, Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven. This is in response to the command of the Lord, by the way. And there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Now that plague back in chapter 10 is replicated as the people are fleeing, and the, the cloud representing the glory of God comes between the Egyptians and the Israelites and gives darkness to the Egyptians and gives light to the Israelites so that they can cross the Red Sea. The prophet Amos warns that the day of Yahweh, that is the time of his coming, will not be light but darkness for those deserving his judgment. He says to these people in Amos 5, Woe to you who desire the day of Yahweh. You're saying you want God to come? You're saying you want, oh, we, we want justice? We want God to make everything right? He says, why would you have the day of Yahweh? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit them. Is not the day of Yahweh darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Malachi uses the the imagery of judgment as well. Malachi chapter 4. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But, here's the contrast that we're going to see in the last part of verse 2. For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise. Exactly the same verb as in our text, by the way. For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. 
on the day when I act, says Yahweh of hosts. So, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the other prophets warn unrepentant Jews of their day using the same words often as the darkness and thick darkness in our text. Here it is in Jeremiah 13, verses 15 through 17. Hear and give ear, be not proud, for Yahweh has spoken. Give glory to Yahweh your God before he brings darkness before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains, and while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. Both those words that we see in our text. Joel uses the same imagery in chapter 2, beginning of the chapter. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of Yahweh is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, and we could go on with other illustrations, but what I'm suggesting that it's reasonable is that it's reasonable to interpret our text from Isaiah in the same way. The darkness and thick darkness that will cover the earth there in the first part of verse 2 signify the coming of God and justice to judge evil. And then the second part of that verse, introduced by the word but, tells us that the coming of God is also one in mercy to rescue his people from evil. The same God is the God of justice and the God of mercy. Those who refuse to humble themselves in repentance, cast themselves upon his mercy, Receive justice. How could it be otherwise? What kind of horrible idol would be a God who, who does not, is not just? What hope would there be for sinners, though, in a God who is not merciful? Our God is both just and merciful. And so the verse 2 ends there. The Lord will arise upon you. Notice how that reflects verse 1. It says, your light has come, the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, and it says the Lord will rise upon you. It makes it even more personal there, doesn't it? It's not just the glory of Yahweh will rise upon you, but Yahweh himself will arise upon you. The, the word there is the word used for the sunrise, for dawning. And his glory will be seen upon you. Again, echoing verse 1, but what a remarkable statement. His glory will be seen upon you. How can that be? How can it be that the light who is God is seen in these sinners? Well, what we, what we have here is what we often see, see in Scripture, and that is that, that the light first represents God himself and his holiness and his goodness, right? We see that reflected in the last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple was the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, 
For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. It will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. So this light is, first of all, the light that is God himself. But in our text, this light is also that of God's people who have been refined and cleansed by him. Here's Isaiah chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem, that is, those who remain after judgment, after discipline, those who are, have repented, he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment, by a spirit of burning. That sort of recalls the text that we looked at a couple of Sundays ago, doesn't it? And so it's the Spirit's work, bringing repentance and cleansing, that, that gives the commands in our text their power and their authority. It's on the basis of what God has done for you that you can obey his command to arise and shine. The slave girl in the dirt with a chain around her neck is redeemed. It's from Isaiah chapter 52. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem, that is, up off the ground. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says Yahweh, you are sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. You'll be redeemed by God himself. Zion, then, is those who've been brought to repentance and have been redeemed from slavery to their sin, and they're the ones who are commanded here to rise and shine. And they can do so because of the might and light of their Redeemer. We see that image in many places we don't have time to look at right now. But, but I want to I want you to think about what that really means for a moment. Obviously, God is not saying you're to have a glowing countenance in a physical sense, okay? Although it's nice to see your faces glowing when you're smiling. <laughs> but that's not what he's talking about here, right? No, to stand and be light in a world of darkness is evidence in personal works of justice and mercy, which are clearly motivated by love. It's what Jesus is talking about, isn't it? In Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Don't miss everything packed into that, right? It is through godliness and good works done in the power of Christ that your light shines before others, 
not to bring attention to yourself, but rather to bring glory to God. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 5 when he, when he describes uh, you as believers as children of the light. Ephesians 5, beginning at verse uh, 7. Now you are light in the Lord. Okay, you've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light, that is what is produced by light, is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And of course, those are parallel thoughts. That which is good and right and true is that which is pleasing to God. And so he applies to us this passage from Isaiah. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. So don't lose sight of the fact there that, that this light that you're commanded to shine with is a reflected light. Okay, God has shone upon his people in our text. The Lord will dawn upon you, but then you have a light because you're reflecting his light. You're not the source of that light, as if somehow in your innate goodness you produce light. The whole world was lost in the darkness of sin, and that included you, but the light of the world is Jesus. And he shone on you like the morning sun awaking you from sleep, and like the light of Jesus' words shining on the corpse of Lazarus and raising him from the dead. In other words, God in his grace made you alive to do good works, and it is in him, him in you, and you in him, by which the Holy Spirit is working. Here it's expressed in Philippians chapter 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, that's your light, it's supposed to be shining. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He brings you to repentance, and he cleanses you, and by faith in his work in you, then you let your light shine. Nor do you have to worry that God might somehow... Uh, withdraw from you his grace and thrust you into darkness again. You, n- you don't have to worry that, that, that somehow you will lose this. To go a little further into chapter uh, uh, 60 of Isaiah, verses 19 and 20, the sun shall, no more, shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But Yahweh will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For Yahweh will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. The light has dawned on sinners and dispelled the darkness of unbelief and sin.
In him, John says of Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God is the light to his people, and they reflect his light into this world. And that then brings us to the conclusion of our text in verse 3. And nations shall come, and kings shall come. People from across the whole spectrum of society and economic well-being will come to your light and to the brightness of your rising. But of course, even by us using those terms that we've seen in the very first verse, we're reminded that your light as God's people is his light in you and reflected from you, right? And God has chosen to use that means to bring glory to himself and to extend his gospel. There is a glory in God to be seen in this created world. Right? There is much that is beautiful and good that points to God. But even more important is your light, the reflection of what God is doing in you, strengthening you, enabling you to persevere, enabling you to bear fruit that is pleasing to him, that brings glory to him. How marvelous is that? <laughs> that God would want to bring glory to himself through people like you. What condescension and love we see in the gospel, don't we? Doesn't that just make you want to reflect that light? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we indeed would be lost in darkness without you. And indeed, were you to come to us in our sin, we would be deserving of nothing but darkness. Darkness and deep darkness of justice against sin. But you have spoken into our word, into our lives, into our hearts, Lord, a word of grace. The gospel penetrated our dull minds and awakened us in our sin to the glorious good news that you are light and in you is no darkness at all and that you have shown that light upon us in Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh God, it's, it's, it's our prayer that you would shine that light anew in our hearts and lives and in the, in the hearts and lives of many others. We long to see you glorified. That's really what we want more than anything else. Sometimes we get distracted and we want to call attention to ourselves. We want people to know how good a person we are, how, how together we've got it. But Lord, that's, that's in our worst moments. What we really want is to see you glorified. So help us, Lord, to, to do that. You've given us this great privilege of glorifying you. Help us to do it by your grace by your spirit as we are obedient to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.